Welcome to Rock and Roll High School. In-depth, personal conversations with the most legendary figures in the history of contemporary music. Come with us as we explore the stories behind the albums and songs that have become the soundtrack of our lives. Here's your host, Pete Ganbark. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Rock and Roll High School. Our guest this week is legendary guitarist and songwriter Steve Cropper. An original member of the iconic Booker T and the MGs, Steve is a member of both the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and the Songwriters Hall of Fame. Songs that Steve has written and or performed on include all-time classics like Green Onions, In the Midnight Hour, Knock on Wood, Soul Man, and one of the most beloved songs of all time, Otis Redding's Sitting on the Dock of the Bay. On Mojo Magazine's list of the 100 greatest guitarists of all time, Steve is ranked number two, behind only Jimi Hendrix. Steve is also an original member of the Blues Brothers Band, backing up John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd on all their recordings, as well as in their hit film of the same name from 1980. Artists who have recorded Steve's songs include the best of the best, Janis Joplin, Bruce Springsteen, Aretha Franklin, among many others. And the list of artists who Steve's recorded with is even longer. Paul Simon, Jimmy Buffett, Ringo Starr, Roy Orbison, Leon Russell, John Lennon, and many, many more. He's also been nominated for a sensational seven Grammy Awards, winning two. This interview was recorded in August of 2021, shortly before Steve's 80th birthday. Sitting in the morning sun I'll be sitting when the evening comes Watching the ships roll in And then I watch them roll away again Yeah, I'm sitting on the dock of the bay Watching the tide roll away Hi everyone, welcome back to another episode of Rock and Roll High School. I am thrilled today to welcome our special guest, Steve Cropper from Nashville. Hi Steve. How are we doing? We're doing great, man. It is an absolute honor and a privilege to speak with you. What I love to do before I come in today to to sit down with someone like yourself is I do a lot of listening and a lot of homework. It has been such a joy to listen to your playing over the last few weeks, getting ready for today. So I am absolutely thrilled that you're here. So thank you again. Glad to do it. I understand that this year that we're recording 2021, you got a big birthday coming up. Yep, I do. <laughs> and th there's some great things scheduled to celebrate your birthday later this year in October. Yeah, I'm going to have another meeting later today after this interview with the people that are putting it all together. But we had a meeting with them last week, and it was all about our guest list. Had nothing awesome. to do with the guests on the show. <laughs> During that interview, I will tell you, I can name some names, but I can't guarantee that, that they will show up. <laughs> There's a lot of big names. Everybody wanted to be there, so that's good. And we're celebrating it, actually not on my birthday, but before, because the band that's, that's doing it, and I preferred doing it at the Ryman, and that was the only date they had available, was the 7th, September the 7th. Wow. Well, that's, that's soon. Labor Day. So we're, we're recording this in mid-August, so that, that's soon. I mean, that's going to be spectacular you know, for, for people to celebrate you and celebrate your birthday and celebrate all the music. But before we start, I would love for our listeners just to understand if they don't know a lot about you, some of the accolades that you've received. 
You were awarded the BMI Icon Award at the 2018 BMI Country Awards. You've won two Grammy Awards, seven Grammy nominations, Best R&B Song for Dock of the Bay in 68, Best Pop Instrumental Performance of Cruisin' with Booker T and the MGs in 1994. You have a star in Nashville on the Music City Walk of Fame. You're a member of the Memphis Music Hall of Fame, a member of the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame, a member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, the Songwriters Hall of Fame, the Rhythm and Blues Hall of Fame. In 2004, you received Tennessee's Arts and Humanities Lifetime Achievement Award, and Booker T and the MGs received the Governor's Award in March 2005, saluting their contribution to the cultural life of Tennessee. And last but not least, Keith Richards has referred to your guitar playing as perfect. <laughs> he didn't know much about guitar, does he? <laughs> <laughs> Continuing on, Mojo Magazine from the UK listed their top 100 greatest guitar players of all time. Let me just read some of the names on the top 10. Neil Young's on there. Jimmy Page is on there. Eric Clapton's on there. Keith Richards on there. Chuck Berry's on there. Jimi Hendrix is number one. Steve Cropper is number two. Wow. <laughs> that is, uh, that's the, the news heard around the world. And I defunct that all I can. I shouldn't even be on the list, let alone second. That's crazy. The good news is I did meet and know, uh, I knew, uh, Jimmy quite well, and uh, that's a good news. I know he's not with us anymore, but I did know him. You, you've played with some of the most incredible people, you know, in the history of music that we're going to talk about. But, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about starting this conversation. I don't even know where to start because you've done so much, and we could literally sit here for hours just talking, and I know that we can't do that. But I would love to start out. In the beginning, you were born in Missouri. Your dad was a farmer, then a railroad cop. Tell, tell us about the beginning, the very beginning. Well, uh, you know, I grew up on a farm, and uh, there's a sign on Highway 63 that says I was born in Willow Springs, Missouri, and I was. But my dad was over there auditioning for a job, and somebody, he dropped my mom, and, and she was pregnant with me. I, I hadn't been born yet, to go do his job, and he dropped her off at my aunt's house which is not there anymore. <laughs> and that's why it all happened. So after we could travel, I was born. So somebody came to my dad during his audition and said, you better get back to your aunt's house. Your wife is getting ready to have that baby. And according to the doctors, I was about two weeks and a half late. So, you know, they didn't know what was going to happen. And so when we could travel, we went back to the farm in Dora, Missouri. And that's really where I was raised. My mom and dad met at Teachers College in West Plains, Missouri. And both of them were teachers. So my, my mom taught the first through the sixth, and my dad taught the seventh through the twelfth. <laughs> he taught math and other stuff. My mom told me, and I didn't know this, she said in those days there weren't any babysitters, not out in the country. <laughs> she had nobody to drop me off at. So she just took me in class, and she, she said it was set up first grade through the sixth by rows. And she just put me in the first row. <laughs> and she said I was about – Four when I started, and I was five later that year in October. We used to start school in September, so that's still looks about the same. And then in October, I would turn uh, my next age. So I, I was I turned went from four to five. My mom said, "Well, she couldn't put me back. She could have. She finally did when I went to the big big school in West Plains, Missouri. She was still on the board as a teacher. They both retired, and my dad went full time farming." 
Then he applied for a job in West Plains, Missouri on the police force. He was there for about a year. We lived in a big town in West Plains for a year. And the chief of police said, Hollis, why don't you go down and apply for that job? There's a guy coming through looking for people to work on a railroad. And he, my dad put an application. He got the job. He said, well, we're moving to Memphis. And I do remember the first time I went to Memphis, my dad woke me up about 10 miles before we hit the Mississippi River. And I was asleep in the back seat of the car. And he woke me up. He said, son, you better get up for this. You might want to see this. And that was a river that was a mile wide. And I never seen anything like that. I grew up around creeks and small rivers and whatever. Well, most people think of Memphis when they think of you, but the first 10 years of your life were actually spent in Missouri. Absolutely. On the music side, I grew up on what they call in Kentucky bluegrass, the same music over in Missouri. And I knew some of those guys and I was young. I, I remember going back every year to my grandfather's house and my cousin at the time was dating a guy one of the Brumleys and their dad and family wrote a lot of hymn books in Missouri, but they had a band, the Brumleys. And I got to play with Tom on a Rod Stewart session many years later. And he didn't really remember me, but he remembered the time. And he used to date my cousin who was 13 or 14 at the time. And he was dating. So they were going to the County fair and they took me with them because he was playing. So I got to hear the, uh, the older brothers play and him too. He was young at the time, but uh, you know, that's where it all started. When you got to Memphis, what was the influence of church music in your life? Well, I don't know. I, that's, I turned on a radio. We weren't used to hearing a radio unless it was in the car. And in West Plains, Missouri, they had a weird lineup of songs. They played everything from, you know, a little bit. Of, and I didn't hear any gospels. They didn't play that. And and uh, they said, what song did you grow up on? I said, how much is that dog in the window? By Peggy Lee, get out of here. So when I turned the radio on in Memphis, Tennessee, there was the gospel music and I never looked back. That was it. That, was, that got me. I had never heard it before and it just took me by storm. All I could say. When did you start playing guitar, Steve? Well, I'm still learning <laughs> in high school. All the guys wanted to learn how to play guitar. And so most of us learned how to play honky tonk by Bill Doggett. To find out many years later is in a different key than what we grew up in. <laughs> so uh, what we did, it was an instrumental in the front with organ and guitar and bass and drums, basically. And then when the horns came in, the song, actually, the record came out in the key of F, if, if, if is there any music students out there. And we would modulate to F when the horns came in. But <laughs> Otherwise, we played the same honky-tonk. Well, I learned how to stretch to play that rhythm, I guess you'd call it. It's not rhythm, but it is rhythmic and it's, it's on two lines and it's old rock and roll. I mean, later they turned it into rock and roll and you played the same two notes, just played it different for rock and roll. Well, I had heard that you had a friend named Charlie Freeman who was taking guitar lessons. And since you couldn't afford those guitar lessons, you went over to Charlie's house and you learned from him, right? Wow. You are up on the, on the thing. So when his mother, Minerva, used to pick him up at school for his guitar lesson, I would run home, get my guitar, and be on his front porch when he got home. And he would teach me that what he learned that day, and then I would go inside and play rhythm behind him so he could rehearse and work on the stuff he had learned that day. And it worked out real good. Well, during that time, he and I started playing some of the local songs that were on the radio and all of that, and we got to be pretty good at it. So a friend of ours who actually... Ted Brewer was his name, and uh, he worked for uh, 
Elvis at one time, I think, and he had a, had a friend who was a DJ and he said, I think it's time. I, I want this DJ a friend of mine to hear you guys. So we went down and, and auditioned for a guy's name was Keith Sheriff in the old Rushwood park, uh, ballpark. And which is not there anymore. It's old wooden park and burned down many years ago. But anyway, he said, is this all you got? Just the two of you? He said, you guys are great. And, and he said, if you had a drummer or a bass player, I'd put you on one of my sock hops. So wow. and I went around school all, you know, for two or three weeks trying to find a musician that could play in the band, either bass player or drummer. We finally found a drummer in the ninth grade, <laughs> Terry Johnson. Who was the drummer on it? He wasn't on on the record last night, but he was in the turn band last night. So what was that when you guys started the Royal Spades? That was originally. And they told us, well, they wanted to put out this song last night. And Charles Packy Action, the horn player, and myself, we came up with that, 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 that. So basically, I am on the record, but not I'm, there's no guitar on the record. And it was my idea, so I guess I co-produced it. My idea to do the drums on the intro. On the record itself, I'm playing. And, and uh, to get back to your original question about the Royal Spades, we grew up in high school, at Messick High School, playing poker a lot. And a Royal Spade flush was the highest hand you could have in poker. It beat all the other. If, if four guys had flushes, right? So you had hearts, spades, clubs, and diamonds. The spade flush would always win out because that was the highest hand you could have. So we call ourselves the Royal Spades, probably based basically from the five Royals. Right. So when that night came out, they said, you, you guys are going to have to change your name because spades is too suggestive. And I right. understand that. But right. the, the royal part of it wasn't. So we had a meeting with the band, and they wanted to call it call the band the marquis spelled like the marquee out front because it was an old old theater the capital theater movie theater and it had a marquee i said that's fine i love it can i spell it can i do the spelling on it? they said we don't care what you do okay so i came up with mar dash keys because it was a keyboard song and there were a lot of groups in those days the mar this the mar that and so i call ourselves the marquees so the marquees is the song you were talking about is last night which you recorded when you were 18 years old? Yeah, it was 1961 it came out. Right. And then you, you know, everyone knows you as a guitar player, but on the recording of the Marquis last night, you're actually playing keys, organ on it. I play right? the whole load on the organ when uh, Jerry Lee Smoochie Smith is playing his organ solo. And the first time I, I'm dead on it, the second time I come in three beats late, I forgot to come in and they said, Cropper, okay. And, then, and so they kept it in there that way. And that's the way it is on the record. became number three in the world in the world i mean which is amazing you just start playing with some friends and all of a sudden you have the number three record in the world uh, talk about your mom hearing it the first time and dancing to it you know i didn't know they said why was last night such a big hit and i didn't know and, but i did recall later that my mom the first time i got the got a record and played it for she started doing the twist i said you know what that was the first twist 
instrumental. It's real easy to do da 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 da. I said that's what it makes you do. So I've been lucky in life playing rhythm. So <laughs> the, music, that's all I've ever done. The song last night became the title track of the first album ever released by Stax. So let's talk about Stax a little bit. Tell everybody about Jim Stewart and Estelle Axton. <laughs> well, you know, the, the combination there is real simple. He wanted a recording studio and she always wanted a record shop. So one day at they Mesa, were brother, they were brother and sister for anybody. Yeah, they who were. Doesn't. So I'm going to, I'm going to talk about Estelle's son. He was a good friend of mine, Packy Axton, Charles Packy Axton. So I used to pick him up to go to school all the time. His mom was always back there with the radio on ironing a shirt for him or whatever. And I used to pick him up all the time. And he came running up to me one time and he says, I hear you got a great band. I said, well, thanks a lot. He said, I'm going to be in your band. I said, you do. We're not looking for anybody. What do you play? And he said, saxophone. I said, really? And somewhere in that conversation, I still have searched my brain for it. And I can't figure out where this came up. But he said in that conversation that his uncle owned a recording studio. And I found out later he owned some recording equipment in a garage in North Memphis, which is fine. But but he had his heart set on. He was already recording people. He had a, a vocal booth set up and had cut the Veltones, which was a local R&B group over in West Memphis. And he cut them and some other stuff. And he just always had a knack for wanting to be in the record business. And one day he called us in to play on a, a session for an artist that he was considering maybe signing, but he hadn't signed him yet. And he called us in to come and play on a Sunday, which never happened at Stax. And I can tell you where Stax came from later, and I'll get to that in a minute. But as far as we knew, the singer never showed. Well, I was on a Sunday. He had sang all night long on Saturday and sung himself out. He'd get up the next morning, he can't sing. He said, I'm not going to go on and record and not being able to sing. So he didn't show up. He didn't come back there. So the Booker T and the MGs was the house band at that time. And we were just jamming around, keeping our chops up, playing songs like fillers that we play on stage and all that. And Jim, after we got through with this blues song, which is on the backside of Grinnell, it's called Behave Yourself. He said, hey, guys, come up and listen to that. And we went, you recorded that? <laughs> yeah. So he was ready to record anyway. So he just hit the record button and there it was. So Jim said at the time, if we decided to put something like this out, do you guys have anything we could put on the B side? In those days, records had an A side and a B side. And, and we all looked dumbfounded, absolutely dumbfounded. And we went, no, we don't have anything ready. And I did remember that Booker had played me a couple of riffs or maybe more than a couple and I said, you remember those riffs you played me? You said might be good for vocal songs. And he said, I don't know. Come down to the organ and I'll play them for you. You tell me. And he hit Green Onions. I said, that's it. That's the one. And in four cuts later, we had it. And the only change, I think, production-wise, Jim Sturt said, hey, Steve, that thing you're doing in the middle when it's your turn and the third eight bars or whatever it is, he said, why don't you put that on the intro? And then when it gets to the eight bars, you're, you know, the third verse, basically. Just play a regular solo, and I'm going, he wants me to play a solo, I can't believe it.
then that is green onions. That was a year later after last night. So last night was the summer hit of 61 and green onions was a summer hit of 62. Well, how, how did the marquees become Booker T and the MGs? They didn't. <laughs> so Booker T and the MGs as the house band, we continued on as the house band, even though we had instrumental hits out and, and green onions demanded that we put out another record because we had the number one record in the world. So the marquees <laughs> had broken up. While we were not yet, but while we were recording uh, Green Onions, they were still the marquees were still on the road, and Duck Dunn, who's the world's greatest bass player, was still out with them. And you mentioned Tommy Dowd earlier with Atlanta. He came down way later. He came down to work on some Booker T stuff and some Otis Redding stuff, and taught me about everything I ever knew about engineering. I didn't know how to engineer. He taught me how to read a VU meter. And, and how it would react to kick drums and bass and vocals and so forth. And that's what I learned how to do. What a lot of people don't realize about Green Onions is that Duck Dunn is not playing bass yet. He's not an MG yet. It's Louis, Louis Steinberg who actually helped come up with the title of Onions, which later became Green Onions, right? You want to talk about that? He did come up with the title Onions. And I said, that's a little negative. And I don't know how I just knew that negative stuff didn't go over so well. And I said, you know, the thing about onions, that's a great title. However, it does make people cry and it does give people, some people indigestion when they eat them. <laughs> but green onions, they don't, it doesn't make you cry. And a lot of people have green onions on their plate on their, you know, for summer dinner or whatever. They have uh, green onions. So they said, that's a good idea. Let's call it green onions. So we did. <laughs> you were going to talk about how stacks, the name stacks came to be. Yeah. Later in life. Because originally, I think we had satellite records and Jim Stewart received a letter from a lawyer in California somewhere said cease and desist letter because there's already a satellite records. And uh, I remember the label had a little hand drawn Sputnik on it and all that kind of stuff. And they said, we're going to change the name. We've got to go from satellite to another record label. So he and Estelle, Jim Stewart and his sister Estelle Axton set up all night long and finally came up with Stuart S-T-A-X accent, Stacks. <laughs> and they agreed upon it. Turned out to be pretty good, I guess. So talk about going to see your friend Reuben Washington on the radio and what happened that day. Well, I almost started that a while ago. I knew we had cut something that was pretty catchy. The reason I, I used to go see Reuben on his drive time show every morning, and I'd just hang out there until it was time for me to go to work at the record shop. And the reason I was down there is because my wife at the time worked for Sealy Postopedic Mattresses. And she was a seamstress for them. And I would drop her off at work. At the, she had to be at work at 7, so I'd drop her off about 10 till or whatever. And then I would head to the to WLOK radio station. And I got to be pretty good friends with Ruben. I, so I walk in with that dub, and, and I knew it was pretty good. So on, we cut it on a Sunday. On a Monday, I had Scotty Moore cut me a dub on it. And he, he was worked the lathe over at Sun Records. And uh, I'll get around to that later about all guitar players. The reason I played guitar, and there wasn't a guitar on last night, because Chips Bowman, who was a great songster and producer and guitar player, but he wanted to be an engineer. <laughs> so my first session at Stax as a guitar player, my very first session, he put me on it and told me what to play, hummed it to me. And that was a, a record by Prince Conley. And I think you find it in the best of albums. But anyway, on the, on the song, I played for Ruben. I said, Ruben, I want you to hear this because I had Scotty cut me a dub on it yesterday. 
and listen to this, tell me what you think. Well, he backs, he stops it after the intro and all. And I said, what, you don't like it? He said, no, I just want to hear it again. Make sure that I like what I heard. What I didn't know, he flicked the switch and put it out on the air. <laughs> all I heard was his end of the phone saying, I don't know. We're going to find out. I don't know. We're going to find out. His phone started lighting up. And so finally I had to go to get my job and he knew that. And I took the dough. <laughs> So I go into my job and uh, at the record shop at Satellite Records. And so Estelle says, uh, there's something going on. I bet you had something to do with it. And I said, you're not talking about this, are you? And I held up the <laughs> Because people had called the record shop wanting, wanting to buy that record they heard on the radio. But the song at that point didn't have a name and the band didn't have a name, right? It was no. just this dub. So let me get around to that real quick. Estelle knew that we, we had something going on and knew we might have a hit on our hands. So she calls Jim, who was still working at the bank, Jim Stewart, her brother. He was still working at the bank. And she tells him, she says, you know, there's something going on you need to know about. So when you take your lunch break, you better head to the studio. So when he heard the news, when he come over and heard, and we told him what was going on, he said, well, call the band in. we got to come up with a name for the group and a name for the record. So we got everybody together, Al Jackson, and Louie and Booker and myself. And we all went back in the control room and listened to it again. That's when Louis Steinberg came up with onions. And we and so the question was, Louis, why did you name an onions? He said, and this is a true story. That's the stankingest music I ever heard in my life. Stanking. He said, that's, stankin'. he said, that's the stankingest music I ever heard. And then the story I were told earlier goes on from there about green onions and onions. So the, the song becomes a hit. I mean, all of a sudden, you guys just jamming on a B-side, thanks to Reuben Washington playing it and the phones going nuts at the radio station and everybody calling Estelle down at Satellite Record Shop wanting to find this unknown song by this unknown band. It becomes a hit. And everything that you ever thought about starts happening, right? Pretty much. And you've been in Atlantic. Jerry Wexler called down and says, you get that record on stacks because we don't have time to promote a new label. It was come out on Volt 102, the second release we ever had on Volt. <laughs> so that you have Atlantic Atco, we had satellite or stacks and, and, and Volt, stacks and Volt. And Jerry was right about that. He said, get that record on stacks. So I think it came out. On Stacks is 126 or somewhere around in there. At what point had Jim done a deal with Atlantic and Jerry Wexler to distribute Stax's music through Atlantic? Well, around that time. I would say the end of 62, yeah. And that would later go down as one of the worst deals in the history of the music business, but Maybe. that's another conversation. Let me tell you this. Because Jim Stewart, being the Southern guy that he is, we always keep our word. <laughs> Only the guys that draw up the paperwork make the money for that. And we don't need, if it tells somebody we're going to do something, if I tell you I'll be over next Wednesday to help you cut your corn, I'm going to be right there next Wednesday. <laughs> That's the way it is. <laughs> this old guy doesn't need contracts, but the business demands it. So we yep. have a lot of them. Yep. Well, talk about, you know, the other players on the session. You talked about Booker. You talked about Louie, who would later be replaced by Donald well, Dunn. But talk <laughs> talk about Al Jackson. Two things in that band. Doug Dunn and I always said that Al Jackson was the greatest R&B drummer to ever walk the earth. And that was proven by a show we did over in 67 in Oslo, Norway, by a different film crew, and they shot it in black and white. And Anton Fig, of all people, brought Duck and I's attention to it. And we said, that's what we've been saying all our lives. If that video doesn't prove that Al Jackson is the greatest 
R&B drummer. He may not be the greatest drummer, but he, he gets accused of being the greatest drummer, but he was the best R&B drummer I had ever heard. The other thing is that Booker T. Jones is the best musician that I have ever worked with. Was Booker 17 years old when Green Onions was cut? <laughs> I think he was 16. I said he was 15. <laughs> Booker <laughs> came back one night and he said, Steve, you got to stop saying I was 15. I was 16. I said, okay, Booker, I'll remember that. <laughs> and are you and he still in touch, Steve? Well, yeah, every now and then. I think the last time we worked together was a night of respect for Otis Redding in, in uh, New York. Because I've heard you refer to you and he as Booker T and the MG now, because unfortunately, Al and Duck are no longer with us. I said us. if we toured today, it'd be Booker T and the MG because the other two are gone. Duck hmm. and Al are not with us anymore, unfortunately. So you tour the U.S., you play the Dick Clark TV show, everything starts to go crazy. At what point did you just go with it and say, okay, this is going to be my life now? Well, you know... Booker T and MGs, I know we had a hit record. That was a biggie. We could have toured until we ran out of touring. But we couldn't tour because Jim wanted us. We, he was paying us. And he wanted us to be the, you know, the house band, in which we were. So very little attention was ever given to Booker T and MGs. Very little. But we always had good ideas. But we didn't always get to put them down on tape. <laughs> and the thing about Al, he would always, we used to work on weekends. So he would always study the crowd. And he would remember those tempos and he used to call the show based on the song that we just finished and everybody was out on the dance floor. He'd call another one just like it and keep them on the dance floor, get them back out there. You know, he just knew that rhythm and he studied it. So if we did on a Monday morning, start with Booker T and MGs and doing instrumentals, Al had that beat going and he knew what it was. He remembered it from the weekend. So I think that was one of the first bands that really did study their audience and play for their audience. So it turned out well, pretty good. Jim Stewart, Jim Stewart made it worth your while to be the house band because he, I'm sure it was unusual at the time, he actually gave publishing to the writers of the instrumentals. Is that right? They're well, writers, yeah. If you played on it, you got a portion of it. And that all stemmed from, uh, I, I want to say probably me, after last night and royalty checks came in, I didn't get one. I, I go to Jim and I said, Jim, where's my check? He said, well, you're not on this record. I said, what are you talking about? I <laughs> co-wrote it. I, I came up with the da-da, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. I know Jerry Lee Smoochie Smith wrote the keyboard part, but I came up with that and uh, also the drum intro. <laughs> and he said, well, you're not on it, so it's too late to change the paperwork then. So another friend of mine told me what went down when, I, when all that went down. That's fine. So I got fortunate enough, and you ask uh, what what made me change my mind? Nothing changed my mind, except the only thing I ever got really upset with Jim Stewart was when he made the decision, the corporate decision, which was a good decision, no more outside recording. So I sat down with Jim, and he trusted me, and I sat down in his office. I said, Jim, I'm on a roll now with Wilson Pickett. You want me to quit doing Wilson Pickett? He said, absolutely, Steve. You can't do it anymore. And I was like, why? <laughs> And Pickett kept going. I knew he was a hit artist. And everything we cut with him was a hit. So, 
Well, let, let's talk about that a little bit, because the artists that you work with and the songs that you wrote and the recordings that you played on are some of the most iconic of all time that our audience might not be aware of. I would love to kind of just call out a song and have you give us some recollections of it and um, some of the artists you work with. So you mentioned Wilson Pickett. Let's talk about In the Midnight Hour, 1965, produced that you wrote, but produced by Jerry Wexler. Absolutely. Produced by Jerry. Yeah, so Jim Stern and I picked uh, Jerry and Wilson up at the at the airport, and we were checking them in. And and uh, so Jerry looked at me and he says, "Well, I'm going to take Jim out. We're going to have a little business meeting and a, and a little lunch. And you guys just set up and start writing some songs, okay?" So I had already had the idea of in the midnight hour in my head, and I had another one later. And uh, but Wilson wrote, "I'm not. Uh, what is it? I'm not. T- no, no, I'm not tired of the other one." There you sit all by yourself. Everybody's dancing and can't help yourself. So that was the second one we wrote. So <laughs> Jerry and Jim get back from their dinner, and Jerry, knock, there's a knock on the door, and I open it, and it's Jerry Wexler. He says, "Hey, you guys coming right?" And I said, "Well, we got two, and we playing for him." He said, "You guys just keep writing." <laughs> so that's what we did. We cut all three the next day, and all three were went up to charge. I'm Talking about in the midnight hour, wasn't it Wex's idea to delay the backbeat to kind of design like a jerk? It was, and I think I think now when I think about what he was doing, the guy said he was shadow boxing, and I said, well, he was more doing a jerk, I think, the jerk lick, just bringing his hands down. And, I, you know, and Tommy Dowd told me later he liked what I did, and I got lucky with that song. And Tom Dowd later said, well, you, you know, I love what you're writing, but you need to start writing on the downbeat. And right. I, I don't know, three top 10 records in a row. Right. And his reasoning of why you should write on the downbeat was because you'd get more of a sing-along effect instead of just telling a story and singing correct. it where correct. the words fall, right? Now, back on, that is, that is correct. And back on uh, last night, they flew Al Jackson to New York and he overdubbed the snare one more time, but he was so good at it. It was so tight. It sounded like one snare, one big snare. You listen to Al Jackson's drumming now, like even as something as iconic as knock on wood, which we'll talk about in a second, but you know, the knock and then the, just the, the instinctive three snare hits, you know, was that something that was just instinct for Al? Probably. We did, we did, we just took it for granted. I mean, he played what he played, but Al did say something. He said, thank ace and play four. <laughs> one, one thing that people may not realize, this is the 1960s. This is Memphis, Tennessee. Right. You know, Booker T and the MGs were an integrated band. You know, this was Memphis was the city that a few years later, Martin Luther King was assassinated in. What was that like? Because I, I've heard you talk about there was no color at Stacks. There was none. And everything you just said basically happened before all that other crap happened, whatever that was. They had people from up north come in and mess up everything. Now I read, you know, I have in the past that Memphis 
town. The town of Memphis, Tennessee was the most segregated city in the South. I didn't know that. But all of the stuff happened down in Alabama and Georgia and wherever, all the sit-ins and all the sort of stuff. And then the biggie happened when Martin Luther King was assassinated. And I can tell you that you said you get into it later, but if you, where he, the balcony he was assassinated on, we passed it the other day. I was in Memphis on the second floor. If you go down one, it used to be where that parking lot is now. There used to be a pool out there, a swimming pool. And if you go down one and one over, that's where we wrote knock on wood. <laughs> that was the Lorraine motel you're talking about. The Lorraine motel. Yep. It was. And the thing about it is when he was assassinated, we were already in San Francisco or doing the Fillmore West. And they had not sold any tickets. Bill Graham came to me. I went to the restroom after sound check and, and Bill is in there. And he comes up beside me and he says, Steve, I'm going to send you boys home. He said, because we hadn't sold a ticket. He said, spend the night and I'm going to book your flight back tomorrow and all that sort of stuff. So we go back to the hotel, the Jack Tar and the motel the Jack's Harbor Motel and the phone rings and we answered and it's Bill Graham. He said, get your butts down here as soon as you can. He said, there's a line around the block. wanting to see you guys play. And that was a great show that night. And, and we get down there and there literally is a line all the way around the block. People want tickets to get in. When you got back to Memphis, was everything different? Uh, yeah, a little bit. I mean, some of the things were still the same, but a lot of it was a little different. And we had had a few skirmishes or whatever with some of the local gangs. and But we went to work every day. And, uh, I, you know, things around where we grew up and all that at Stacks, most of those buildings were torched, except Stacks. <laughs> that was the only standing building. And I found out later that Ray Meadows, who was a bodyguard for a lot of people, but I forget what Ray was doing at that time. Anyway, he stood out front and said, you ain't torching this, man. This is a place of, this is where we all work. You're not wow. going to torch this. And they didn't. They wow. torched the bakery, the restaurant, the, the shoe shine shop, the liquor store up the street. And, um, they torched them all. <laughs> well, let's get back to another song that you worked on. Wilson recorded it. You wrote it with Eddie Floyd. Talk about six, three, four, five, seven, eight, nine. Uh, that one is a weird one. And, and so when I went down to the Lorraine, Eddie opens the door. He said, I got a great idea for a song, Cropper. I said, great. What is it? He said, I want to write a song about my girlfriend's phone number. <laughs> <laughs> so Eddie being from Detroit, it was a Detroit phone number, but I couldn't make it work. And he couldn't either. And we just, we played music and rhythm and all that and couldn't get it going. And I literally did this. I, I went to the nightstand and got that little pad and pencil off the nightstand, took a chair, set myself in the corner till I got some numbers to go up and down. Six, three, four, five, seven, eight, nine. So that's the number we, so we wrote it. Wilson was coming in. And so we were going to, we played, we made a little demo of that song. Went to the studio and cut it the day before. So we pick up Wilson at the airport, take him straight to the studio. And Eddie was really excited because they're old buddies in the same group and all that kind of stuff. So he was very excited about playing him this six, three, four, five, seven, eight, nine for the session the next day. And he has Wilson, instead of the lyrics, and we're up in the control room, I put the song up. <laughs> About that time, you know, Wilson said, this is a piece of crap, and he wads it up and throws it. <laughs> About that time, Eddie hits him with a fly attack. I said, oh, my God, the session's off and all that, and they're wrestling around on the studio floor. <laughs> and I just knew everything was lost at that point. 
to find out they've been doing that for years. <laughs> and I didn't know that. They didn't tell me either. So they were so, having some fun with you. So I guess they did whatever they did. And then uh, Wilson calls me later at the studio. He says, what time are we riding tonight? I go, I didn't know we'd ride at all. That's how I found out that they must have been kidding me. So, And we wrote that night. We already had 6-3 that we had written the night before, recorded it the day before. And as I'm turning into the Lorraine Motel, I see a big Coca-Cola sign. It says, 99 and a half won't do. Coke is 100%. So I go into the to the room, and I said, guys, I got a great idea for a song. 99.5% won't do. Got to have 100. And Wilson jumped on that real quick. So we cut that in 634 the next day, and both of them went up to charge for big hit records. Well, I read that 634, we talked about Tom Dowd talking about writing on the downbeat. And I had heard you say that 634 was the first time that you had written on the downbeat. Ah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, you said it. We're only talking about uh, a couple of years ago, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So let, let's move on to another song that you wrote at the Lorraine Motel with Eddie Floyd. Talk about Knock on Wood. Right. And and in and in the midnight hours, the influence of the riff on Knock on Wood. Well, uh, Eddie talks about the influence, and he says it came from Midnight Hour. I don't remember that, but anyway, Eddie says another time. I got a great idea for a song. Great, what? And he said I want to write a song about superstitions, and I tell you that we took everything known to man that we could think of, from opening umbrellas, walking under ladders, black cats, throwing salt over your shoulder, breaking some champagne glasses and all that. And nothing seemed to sing right. And I said at the end of about an hour and a half into this song, I looked at Eddie. I said, Eddie, what do people do for good luck? And he said, they on wood. I said, there's our song. This woman is so great. I don't want to lose her. I better knock on wood for good luck. <laughs> so we wrote it. That's, that's what we wrote about. I read, we talked about earlier that Keith Richards said that your guitar playing is perfect, but I also read that Ringo Starr has said that Knock on Wood is his all-time favorite song. I didn't hear that one. That's good. <laughs> yeah, we'll take it, right? My all-time favorite Ringo song is Every Time I See Your Face. It reminds me of the Photograph. Photograph. Great song. You remember it. It's a great song. Great song. So Richard Perry presented that song, and he said, George Harrison has written a song for Ringo's new album. And we played it for everybody, and everybody went. And I look at Nicky Hoppus, and I said, Nicky, let's go out and put a groove on this. The next thing I know, Jim Kellner comes and sits down. Then Ringo comes and sits down. Then Klaus comes down and sits down, and we recorded it, and that was the end of that. And I don't know why I wasn't there when Ringo uh, overdubbed his voice, but he did. 
But that's you playing on Ringo's photograph. Absolutely. Wow. There are so many records that you've played on that people don't know. It's worth checking out online to get a list of all these songs. It's ridiculous. You know, talk about Soul Man for a second. <laughs> they wondered, I got asked a question one time. What's the hardest session you ever played on? I said, Soul Man. They said, that was hard. I said, yeah, because I had to keep seated. When, <laughs> when Sam and Dave recorded, if it was good enough, I'd jump up and start dancing. And I couldn't do that because that lick <laughs> I played there, 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 that everybody knows was done with a Zippo lighter as a slide <laughs> lick. And I don't play it with a slide, never did. I tried a, a couple of times with a microphone stand, and that didn't didn't work properly. <laughs> so we're talking about Booker and the MGs, but we haven't mentioned Isaac um, Hayes and David Porter. They were all part of the same family Absolutely. at Stacks. Absolutely. And uh, that was Jim Stewart's idea. We had a six-band production team that shared in all of the sales of records at Stacks, whether you played on it or not. So that was a venture away from if you played on it, you own part of the writers on it, on instrumentals and stuff. And that was Jim Stewart's idea, too. And now, when I inducted them into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, they edited that part out. And I gave Jim, you know, what I'd written down about him and all that. And I said, you know, the thing about Jim Stewart is he was probably the most honest guy on the, in the record business because he would set up all night long and make sure that everybody got every penny they had deserved from based on what he was paid by royalties. I don't know anybody that did that. I worked for a lot of labels yep. at the time before, before stacks and after stacks. And nobody ever did that, that I know of, you know, that not that they were dishonest. I'm just saying that they didn't stay up all night long. And Jim was an accountant, you know, he worked at the bank and he knew numbers and all that sort of stuff. He wanted to make sure that everybody got everything they deserved. And well, so when he made the production team, that was that was one of the greatest things that ever happened. So the six people that you're talking about are yourself, Booker, Duck, Al, Isaac, and David? That's it. That's a six-man team. Not a bad and team. They tried to add a seventh at one time with Alan Jackson, but uh, that never – he produced some of the Barquet stuff. And, you know, David was really instrumental in the Barquet's hit. So, Soulfinger? Yeah. Great song. You know, I helped him and worked with him on it, but basically that was, that was David Porter's idea. And it was it, David Porter's idea to put the, the high school kids on there going, so finger. <laughs> I remember setting up the recording for it. He told me, he said, I've got about 15 or 20 kids coming down from Booker T. Warsaw's school. Wow. <laughs> David. Did, they all showed up and they filled that studio up big time <laughs> nice david visited us pre-covid a few years ago and we had a nice conversation with him he's great still doing his great. thing in memphis and are you still in touch with jim stewart he's still alive right yeah i am periodically and i stay in touch with him through Denny parker who was the first 
secretary that we ever hired, and we hired her to watch the front door to keep riffraff off the street, <laughs> just walking in off the street. <laughs> when I call yeah. them riffraff, that's, that's an insult, and I don't mean that. But people would just periodically walk in because there was nobody to stop them. Why yeah. not? They wouldn't know what was going on. You know, they didn't know anything about recording. They just wanted to see what was going on. And you could probably hear the band or hear something through the walls. Uh, who knows? Yeah. Yep. But we put her out there and she would stop. No, you can't go in today. Uh, they're recording now. And nobody's allowed back there when they're recording. <laughs> well, like I said, there's so many songs and so many artists to talk about. We're not going to have enough time. So I just got to like speed dance a little bit. So let's talk about the first time that you ever met Otis. Well, we were supposed to be recording Johnny Jenkins and the Pine Toppers. And I don't know how late they were, but they were a little bit late. So the guys went out outside on the street to get some sun and smoke a cigarette, even though we were allowed to smoke in those days in the studio. We still were out there smoking a cigarette. All of a sudden, this big Cadillac pulls up and parks down the street a ways. And I, <laughs> this guy gets out, big tall guy gets out, goes around back, opens the trunk. And starts bringing in stuff. And I go running down there when I see the microphones. And I said, he was setting up like he would set up a gig. And I'm going, man, we got our own mics in there. You don't need to bring that in. Just bring in the, your amps, Johnny's amps and so forth. And I just thought he was Johnny's valet. I did not know that he was Johnny Jenkins and the Pine Toppers lead singer. I didn't know that at the time. Nobody told me. I didn't know. And during the session, we're cutting Johnny Jenkins. And during the session... Otis goes to Al Jackson and says, I want you guys to hear me sing. And Al told him, he said, well, Steve Cropper holds auditions. You probably won't get a chance to sing for him today because he holds his auditions on Saturday. And this was like in the middle of the week or something. So uh, at the end of the day, Jim says, guys, we don't really have anything yet. And he said, let's come back and try it tomorrow. But why don't y'all come up here and listen to what we got so far? So we go up the, to the studio. And Al comes up and he says, Hey, Steve, he said, you know, that guy I told you about guy, he drove the car up here, big tall guy. I said, yeah. He said, can you uh, get him to sing for you? And can you just take 10 seconds out of your time and come down and listen to this guy sing, get him off my back. And I, that Al Jackson said, get him off my back. I guess Otis had been bugging him to death. So I said, okay, I'll do it. We didn't have anything anyways. It didn't matter. And, uh, I said, bring him down to the piano. And I went down to the piano and I said, well, Otis, play something. I, I didn't know his name was Otis at the time. I said, we're saying something, play something. He said, I don't play anything. I play a little guitar, but I don't play piano. I said, you play piano? I said, well, Marvell at the time had been trying to teach me. He said, do you know some church quads? He calls them quads, church quads. <laughs> and I knew what he meant, just six, eight triplets, all it was, these arms. And I said, hold it, hold it. He said, you don't like my song? I said, I love it. I want Jim Stewart to hear this. I promise you that has never happened to me, but that one time only the hair on my arms stood up, I guess from goosebumps. The, the sound of his voice was incredible. And so I go, I said, if, if I get Jim Stewart down here to listen to Otis, I'm going to lose my job if he didn't like you. And so I said, Jim, get a, he said, Steve, what are you doing? I said, you got to come and hear this guy sing. He said, well, I ain't got time to do that. I said, get down here, Jim, and hear this guy sing. And he did, and he wanted to put it down. He said, man, we've got to get this song down. I said, you just told everybody to go home. <laughs> so Duck reminded me about two or three days before he passed away. He said, do you remember running out on the sidewalk? He said, I put my bass in the trunk of my car. And you said, get your bass back out. We've got to put down a song real quick. <laughs> 
And I think Booker had already gone home today. And so I'm left to play piano. Booker was the piano player of the day. So yeah. I played it. A lot of people don't know this. On these arms of mine, when you hear guitar, that's Johnny Jenkins playing guitar. Left hand and, up. And, down like Elvis. Right. And you playing piano. Yep. And these arms of mine became Otis Redding's first hit in 1962. The first of 17 hits in a row for you and Otis. That is true. These arms of mine So talk a little bit about Otis, the man, because I know that you guys had a very special relationship. You were almost like brothers. Well, uh, I, I think Alan Walden summed it up one time. He was doing an interview and he said, this, they said, why was Otis Redding so great? And he said, Otis Redding had a million dollar smile. And that was true. If Otis saw you a hundred yards away, by the time you walked up to him, you were his new best friend, basically. So. That's how Otis was. He was the greatest, had the biggest heart of anybody. And obviously, when anybody thinks about Otis Redding now, one of the first songs that comes to mind is the last song that he recorded, which is Dock of the Bay. You want to tell us about the history of well, Dock of the Bay? Well, the thing about the thing about Dock of the Bay that, you know, he and I wrote it. He said, Coffee, I'm coming right down, which is something he never did. And he he would always fly into the airport on his plane. And go check in and call me from the motel or hotel, wherever it was. And uh, what time we're going to ride or that kind of thing. And he called that day and they said, Otis is on the phone for you. I, did, I thought maybe his plane had stalled and he wasn't coming in or something. And he said, I'm at the airport. I just want to check. He said, I don't need to talk to you. I just want to check, make sure you're there. I'm coming right down. I've got a hit. And he hung up and he came down. He said, get your guitar, get out your guitar. <laughs> and I did, and he starts singing, don't, don't do that thing, sitting in the morning, son. And the rest of the lyrics, I, you know, I helped him write some of the verse. Uh, and then I wrote all, most all of the bridge. He wrote the lyrics to the bridge. I wrote all the changes to the bridge. And then there was a third verse. So that's the way we did it. <laughs> Look like nothing's going to change. the same I can't do what 10 people tell me to do so I guess I'll remain the same yes. sitting here resting my bones and this loneliness won't leave me alone and unfortunately Otis died before he could finish the recording absolutely the last words or the last time I saw Otis and the last words he said he popped his head in the control room door and I was setting up to do the overdubs on uh, the electric guitar overdubs on Dock of the Bay. He said, I'll see you Monday. I said, okay, see you Monday. And I didn't know at the time when he said that this was a Friday afternoon that we had a gig on the next Saturday night at some college up in uh, North Carolina, uh, up in uh, Illinois, somewhere up in there. I might've been Illinois State University. I don't know. But anyway, that was the last time I saw it. The thing about Dock of the Bay most people think that's the last thing he recorded. It's not the last song he recorded. doesn't matter, but uh, 
we would always at the end of the session of every day pull that song back out. We knew we had a hit, but it wasn't finished. And when I say it wasn't finished, it wasn't embellished enough. So after he passed away on a Sunday and we get a call or Jim Sir got a call from New York saying, what do you got ready on Otis? And so Jim comes to me and says, what do you got ready on Otis? I said, Jim, I don't have anything ready on Otis. He said, well, get something ready. Because I said, man, I'm still in mourning. I can't do this. But I started 7.30 on a Tuesday morning. On a Wednesday morning at 7.30, I handed it to a flight attendant going to LaGuardia. Mm. She walked down to the end. That was the days before there was security. You could just be on the tarmac, and I walked right out to the plane. She come down to the bottom of the steps. I handed the master. <laughs> that must have been so hard for you, Steve, because it was three days well, after your best friend, you know, dies in a plane crash. You just deal with what you got to deal with. And I, I really couldn't listen to any Otis Redding music for about four years after that. And a friend one night in L.A. said, you've got to listen to some Otis Redding music. Hmm. I said, I can't. Well, talk about overdubbing some of the sound effects, the waves and the seagulls that came after. I knew that was the best thing we had. And what I didn't say about Dr. Bay is we knew after we wrote it, that that was the first crossover type song that we had on Otis. And he, we was already a monster in Europe and, and was getting bigger and bigger over here in the States, but we hadn't, we couldn't get him on pop radio. They just would not play any Otis Redding songs. And we knew we had a song that could be played on pop. It was what we call a crossover song because it was medium tempo and it was, you know, had that little kind of a light beat and whatever. We knew that when I was mixing it, I'm going, I knew it was the best thing we had, but I couldn't put it out unfinished. And I said, how am I going to fill this thing up? And I got the idea that maybe some seagulls and waves. And I got that idea from Otis and some of the outtakes. (laughs) I said, he's imitating a seagull, but it sounded to me like a dying crow. (laughs) (laughs) So that was Otis Redding's imitation of a seagull. The waves, I don't know, just I called a friend of mine over to Jingle Place and a famous producer now, but at the time he was just an engineer for Pepper Tanner, Jimmy Gaines. Love Jim. He's something else. And I got him to work over TMI. But anyway, I said, I called him and I said, you got any soundtracks over there? You got any seagulls and waves? He said, Steve, that's what we're in the business to do. And I said, okay, I'm coming over. By the time I got over there, he had already pulled out some records for me to listen to. And I said, are they separated? So the dock of the bay, we put the, we made a loop and put seagulls on one track and ocean waves on the other track. And when you make a loop, you can't uh, let that splice go by uh, live because you'll hear it. The sound will jump and people go, what the heck is that? So we, I had to trial and error in mixing it. So that loop never came up when I would bring up the seagulls and the waves. And I tried, you know, with the electric guitar to do trills and things to imitate a seagull sound. Didn't work. And so in the mix, to fill it out, I kept the guitar in there, even though it I didn't get the seagull sounds mm. I was looking for. Well, that recording of Dock of the Bay, according to BMI, is the number six most performed song of the entire 20th century. How many performances do you think? As of 2021, does that song have, Steve? Well, I can call in this afternoon and find out exactly, but I do have a world plaque that says 11 million plays. <laughs> 11 million plays of Dock of the Bay. Amazing. Yeah. 11 million is a bunch. <laughs> so. so let's continue because there's so much more to talk about, not a ton of time, but a whole different generation, Steve, knows you from the Blues Brothers. So talk right. about 
you know, after leaving Stacks and after leaving TMI, talk about how John Belushi insisted that you and Duck Dunn be part of this band, thanks to Tom Malone from Saturday Night Live. Right. Well, basically, uh, we were out, Duck and I were out with Levon Helm, and then Levon Helm and the RCO All-Stars, our company. And that followed the movie The Last Waltz when the band was going to break up just momentarily and do their own solo records, which they all did. And uh, so Duck and I went out. We did two albums and two tours with Levon Helm. And we wound up, Levon got us booked at Carnegie Hall on a, a New Year's Eve, and Belushi happened to be there that night. And he told somebody, I found out about this later, he didn't tell me this, so I didn't hear him say it, but a friend said that John looked at him and said, if I ever put a band together, if I ever put a band together, I want that band. And that's how Duck and I got involved in it. Mm. And so when, when they asked him about me, he said, well, that guy doesn't play guitar. He's a roadie for the, the RCO for Levon Helm. No, he's not. That was him on stage. That guy with the long hair and all that, that's, that's Steve Cropper. Yeah, he's a guitar player. Played on those hits. And then we became really, really good friends after that. So that's pretty funny. And uh, after he passed away, Duck and I, Duck looked at me and just shook his head. When you think about all the guys we had lost, you know, Al Jackson, Otis Redding, <laughs> and now Belushi was mm. we're, we're, you know, taboo or something. Mm. So, you know, I said, I would be surprised if nobody would work with me. Well, that didn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> if I have told them, maybe they wouldn't have worked with me. You know, one of the things, you know, sometimes an aside in a recording session can become as memorable as the song itself. So in the original recording of Soul Man, when you hear, play it, Steve, and okay. then later the Blues Brothers, John Belushi says the same thing. Play it, Steve, you're Steve. Yeah, and really made a big thing out of it. So the thing is that I have to tell people that when, when I mix Soul Man, and I did mix it, I didn't give any more attention to the to when Sam said, play it, Steve, than I would have if he did. Just said another line. It wouldn't have mattered. I, I mean, I should have, but I didn't. Should have turned it way up. So after John Belushi kept saying that, and the thing he said on the tour that really got me, he said, I suggest you go out and buy as many blues albums as you can. I went, wow, that is a statement. And he did a song. He said, Donald Duck Dunn, Steve Cropper. Yep. <laughs> so there Amazing. you go. Some of the other artists that have kind of passed your way or you've passed their way, you almost work with the Beatles. Almost. <laughs> the biggest thing I ever did, I think, well, recording-wise, was with Ringo. But they did send a representative over to, to work with them, and it was Brian Epstein at the time, and he wasn't very happy with security in Memphis. I said, Brian, you know, I've been in this business a long time. Trust me. You will not have 3,000 screaming girls running up and down Macmore Avenue <laughs> when the Beatles are in there. Not going to happen. He didn't go by that. So he called me. He said, well, I'll let you know. And I got him a real good place. Totally secure. The police could, you know, stand around and do whatever. But he called me from New York. He said, well, we're not very happy with what's going on uh, with the Memphis security. And uh, would you mind coming to New York to do the album? I said, if you want me to come to New York, I will. So that never happened. And he called me back and he said, you know, I talked to the boys about it. They're almost through with their album. 
we'll wait on the next one. I said, that sounds good to me. And as far as I know, that was a revolver album. Mm. Which turned out to be pretty good. Yeah, and then totally. the other thing I did was uh, John Lennon's jukebox. Yep. I did a video with that. Right. And John Lennon, there is a song called Beef Jerky, which is his, the B-side of Imagine is his homage to you and Booker, right? Right. So, and one other story that I love that I didn't know about until I started reading up a little bit, I'm getting ready for today, is talk about being, you you mentioned New York, talk about being at Electric Lady in in New York in the 70s, and Stevie Wonder plays you a song he wrote for Jeff Beck. Right. So, prior to that, I'm sitting in Clive Davis's office after lunch. He said, you know Stevie Wonder? I said, yeah, he's a good friend of mine. He said, he's written a song for your next project with Jeff Beck. Really? So he said, I want you to go over to Electric Lady Studios. He's going to play it for you. I said, good. So I go over there. <laughs> and Steve says, to the engineer, put it up, put it up, put it up. <laughs> and he plays this record. And I went, holy mackerel, I'll lean over while it's playing. I said, Stevie, put horns on that and put it out. Not that he did it because I said that, but, but he did put it out. Superstition. And and I didn't. I never did understand why he said he'd written that for Jeff Beck. Then he called Jeff up out of the audience. I, I saw a video one time and Jeff goes up and does superstition with him. And I said, now nah, I get it. <laughs> he had something else in mind that he, he played everything on that record. except mm. And and Jeff Beck later covered superstition, but yeah. Stevie's, you know, him playing yeah. you the I song. Like first the thing that going amazing. down is his biggest song ever period. Yeah, and obviously you produce Jeff Beck. You produce so many amazing people. You know, one of the things that I also didn't know before really prepping for our conversation today is that you produced Otis's Heart to Handle, but I didn't realize that Al Bell was as prolific a songwriter as he was. I always knew him as a Stax executive, but he was a songwriter. Right. And I had the record company one time or the publishing company grabbed me. They saw me walk by a door and one of the controllers said, Hey Steve, can I see you a second? <laughs> I said, yeah. They said, who is this guy? His real name is different. And I, I won't mention on this interview, but Al Bell also wrote the hammer stuff. Ooh, there it is. So when you see that commercial chaka laka laka laka. So they, they told me, who's this guy, his, his real name. It was on some of those stack songs. I said, you don't know who that is? And I told him it was Al Bell. I said, we owe him a lot of money. I said, good. Wow. Send him a wow. check. <laughs> that, that's, that's amazing. Let's see. A few other things to touch on before we wrap up. Sweet Soul Music, the Arthur Conley song. I didn't realize that Otis Redding had co-written that and Arthur Conley made Otis name check himself in the lyric of the same song. Right. And he produced it as well and, and whatever. So they were good friends. And uh, Arthur Conley was on that Staxville tour, by the way, too. Mm. And uh, I will tell you this, and I'm not lying at all. Otis Redding, I'm, we're, we're, he's in the car with me. We're headed to the studio. And he said, Steve, I've decided I'm going to get a place here and stay here. And you and I are going to write and produce records. Really? <laughs> And that never happened. That was about three days before he passed away. That was on a Thursday or Friday, Friday morning, I think. 
let's talk about some gear. You know, obviously, we've talked about how well regarded you are by the press and, and by the audiences all over the world about your prowess as a guitar player. Talk about what you play. You play a PV Telecaster generation. Talk about, you know, just as a gearhead or as a gearhead who's listening to this. Talk about your guitars. Well, I have a thing about my guitars and my style. I just plug it up and go. <laughs> the other thing, how do you pick a guitar? Very simple. Play it acoustically. If it sounds good that way, then find the right amp and the, you know, the right stuff to get, go with it. The problem is with the old Telecasters, there's nothing against them, but you got to pay a lot of money to get one in the first place. Then you got to buy a lot of foot, foot gear, outboard equipment to make it sound right which a lot of guys play and they're playing telecasters, but they, they got their own sound, do their own thing, their own way. And what I have done through the years is modify, modify, modify. And I don't blame, uh, you know, Fender and those people wanting to put out the original. There's no reason not to. The thing is that uh, I didn't endorse them for one reason. I wanted to be able for young guitar players to tell their dad, I want a guitar for Christmas. And he didn't have to go out and spend eight or $10,000 to get one. <laughs> so I've called around and found a guy, his name is Harley Peavy, who was really in the amp business. And I said, will you build me a guitar that I can sell for less than eight, less than a thousand dollars? He said, absolutely. We'll do it. And it is, if you buy the case and the outboard equipment, and all that stuff it's going to cost you well over a thousand dollars. But if you buy just a guitar, it's going to cost you in those days, $870, I think is what it costs. And he was all for that. And I was too. So we had that guitar for about seven years. Speaking of guitars and guitar players, obviously some of the records that you've recorded yourself as an artist, like your With a Little Help from My Friends album in 1969, Iconic Playing. I love this Jam Together record that you did with Albert King and Pop Staples in 1969. It's almost like a tale of three guitar styles. And obviously you produced Under a Bad Sign for Albert King. Talk about that album specifically, the Jam Together record. What a great record. Still, sounds well, urgent now. The Jam Together was actually Al Bell. You mentioned him earlier. That was his idea. And uh, none of us were ever in the studio together to do any of those songs. So we overdubbed on it. Albert did, Pops did, and I did. So we, we all, they already had the tracks. And, uh, you know, it turned out pretty good. What we played turned out real good. And you're right about that. It, it, it is very distinguishable who's playing what when. And the reason is because we were never in the studio at the same time. So we heard it, you know, as, a, as an overdub thing. And that's what it was. So it's real easy to separate all those sounds. Hey, mama, don't you treat me wrong. Come and love your daddy all night long, all right. Hey, hey, what I say. When you see me in misery, come on, baby, see about me. What I say. Well, listening to it now, it doesn't sound like a an album that was recorded 50 years ago. It sounds sonically urgent, sonically present, which is wow. amazing. You know, it amazes me too. I don't know what we're doing, <laughs> right? Something. Green Onions today. Still, to me, 
I feel removed from it. However, it sounds as good today as it did today. <laughs> it really does. And another album that you did that a lot of people may have missed when it first came out, which is an incredible record. We talked about some of your early influences as a guitar player, but we haven't talked about the, the influence of Loman Pauling and the Five Royales. And right. your 2012 album, Dedicated, which is a tribute to the Five Royales, is a collaborative record with people, amazing guests, you and Steve Winwood, Lucinda Williams, B.B. King, Betty LeVette, Brian May from Queen. The vocal that Sharon Jones does on uh, Messing Up, oh uh, my goodness. Yep. You mentioned Betty LeVette too, and she told me, she said, Steve, I have to tell you this. I used to date Loman Paulin's brother. And they always want to be known as the Five Royals. I said, it sounds like a baseball team to me, the Five Royals. But we never heard that before. Our disc jockey in Memphis called them the Five Royals. Mm -hmm. It's spelled the same, but it's bigger. Royals. Yep. <laughs> I said earlier we had the Royal Spades in high school. Right, correct. So your advocacy and your championing of Loman Pauling and the Five Royals helped the Five Royals get inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2015. Yeah, and I felt really good about that. And Loman's son came to me and he said, you know, when my dad died, he was a janitor at a church in, in Manhattan. He said in the obituary, they didn't even spell his name correctly. <laughs> I hmm. never knew that. And they're all from Winston-Salem, North Carolina. So uh, <laughs> I said, you know, if one person, you or one person makes one penny for me doing this album, it'd be worth my time. Well, it's a great record, and it's on all the streaming services. I highly recommend listening to uh, Steve's album, Dedicated. It's a great listen. Steve, some of the other artists that you've recorded with, just to uh, quickly name some names here, Paul Simon, Jimmy Buffett, John Prine. We mentioned Wilson Pickett. We mentioned Ringo Starr, Roy Orbison, John Lennon, Steve Winwood, Dave Mason, Aretha Franklin. You know, any anybody come to mind, like any quick story? Well, I don't know about a quick story. There's one comes to mind about the one you didn't mention, and there's a reason for that. My name is not on there as producer because I was still under contract. And I'm very proud of the album. We did Bump City album with Tower Power. Down to the nightclub and all that. You're still a young man, baby. So I made a deal with Ron Capone, who was the engineer then. I said, Ron, if I put my name on there, I know I'm going to get sued. It's a little bit late. <laughs> it's gone to... Uh, it's, I don't think they can go back that far now and sue me. But anyway. Uh, statute of limitations, Steve. You're good. <laughs> so Ronnie agreed that he would take the production credit. And so I said, but the thing is, you have to sign something. So we got a lawyer, Harold Strybeck in Memphis, and he'd get the royalties from Warner Brothers, and they would, he would split it up, send a check to me and one to Ronnie. Well, after Ronnie died, this check started going somewhere else. I said, okay, just leave it that way. And I didn't even know they had re-released that on CD until I went to Tower Records. I think it was Tower Records in Tokyo. And there they had the, the Tower Power album and CD. Wow. And I went, oh, so I called Warner Brothers. I said, give me the accounting department. <laughs> and Man. they did. And so uh, they referred me to Tower Power's lawyer. And he said, okay, fine. Where's your paperwork? <laughs> Oops. <laughs> right. Never mind. <laughs> well, one thing that you've said, Steve, as a player that I thought was really crystallizes, you know, 
the fact that you've been doing this for, you know, coming on 60 years now is that you've said it's always about the band. It's never about you. Correct. You know, it's very hard to tell somebody to do something. But I, in, in every statement, I've said, guys, if you're on a session, listen to the other players. It's not about you. It's not your session. It's not your album. It's all about the other players. Make everybody else sound good, and you will sound good in the interim. And maybe that's what works. I don't know. So here we are in 2021 recording this interview. You're still making music. You put out an album, a great album, earlier this year that you worked on with with the great John Tiven on in April called Fire It Up with a a lead singer, Roger Reel, who recorded his vocals on an iPhone. Um, (laughs) He did. Every song on there is done with, every vocal on there is done with an iPhone. Even the engineer, my engineer, Eddie Gore, said, I cannot believe he sang that through an iPhone. (laughs) unreal and as we mentioned earlier in the interview you've got a big birthday coming up in october you're going to turn 80 years old and you're going to celebrate what are you looking forward to well i don't know and i I talked to the guys the other day there's been everybody has wanted to be on the show nobody that i know of yet and i have a, a lunch meeting later with the people putting it together nobody yet has said no i don't want to come some of them agreed to come, and then when their lawyers and managers got involved, they said, well, we can't advertise because it's too close to their tour. And I understand that, being in the business. I really do understand why. The reason it's on September coming up is that was the only date available the Ryman had open. And so now we're all with the new variant and going on right now. We're all in a wait-and-see situation. We don't know what's going to happen with the Ryman. Hopefully, it'll still be on. I went to a concert last night at Bridgestone, and <laughs> – I, I sent somebody an email this morning. I said, uh, you know, I went down to see Jackson Brown and James Taylor. And I said, good music for these old ears. <laughs> yeah. It Still doing true. it. Still doing it. You know, I read a quote from you, Steve, which I think is a good way to wrap up this conversation. You said, when you can make a living out of having fun, that's the best thing. And when you look back on your life, is there anything that you would have done differently? No. <laughs> I do get asked, is there anybody you did produce? And that might have been an answer to your other earlier question. Is there anybody you would have liked to have worked with in your career that you didn't get to? And it probably would. My number one answer would be Tina Turner. And a friend of mine, Tony Joe White, got to, he did steamy windows with her. And mm. he told me his encounter with her, <laughs> working with her and all that sort of stuff. She was fantastic. Now, she was at the studio I worked at in L.A. a lot. She was there doing Thunderball and all that. We don't need mm-hmm. another hero and no yep. song. Remember that. And I never did meet her. I passed her one time, and I, like any fan, I didn't have the gumption to say, hey, I'm Steve Cropper. I couldn't do it. <laughs> but she was a – she. I, I saw her live about three times, and she could dance, had the best set of legs and best set of lungs anybody I'd ever seen. Incredible talent. Yep. Incredible talent, as as are you, Steve Cropper. And we really appreciate your time and all the music. And it has been an absolute pleasure to hear the stories. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Glad to do it.
Thanks a lot to today's guest, the Colonel, Steve Cropper, for joining us. Steve is a legend in every way, and we're thrilled to have had the chance to speak with him. For the latest on what Steve's up to, check out his website at playitsteve.com. You can link through to his social media as well to get in contact with the man himself. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time for another episode of Rock and Roll High School. Rock and Roll High School is a presentation of Pure Tone Music in association with Warner Music. Produced by Pete Ganbarg, with assistance from Craig Rosen, Ron Robinson, Joe Pomerico, Kelly Sayer, Chris Costello, Willie Fastenau, Catherine Hoppy, Kayla Flores, Zach Kornhauser, and Rich Mahan. Please visit our website at rockschoolpodcast.com for more info on past and future shows. All rights reserved. Rock, 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 rock on high school.